A few years ago, Cambria Gordon, her husband, and youngest child left Los Angeles to take a year-long sabbatical in Madrid, a city that held sway over her imagination since she was very young. Falling in love with Spain during that year, her fascination grew and she studied its influence on Jewish history. Her new novel, The Poetry of Secrets, a forbidden love story set during the time of the Inquisition, is the stunning result. Cambria Gordon is my guest this week on The Literary Life. Uh, Cambria and I met a year and a half ago on the streets of LA. We had mutual friends, and she told me about this marvelous book that was coming out. And a year and a half later, it comes out, but it comes out into the pandemic. So tell me what your experience has been. Right, with a book during the pandemic. You know, um, virtual launches are fun because <laughs> the, the positive part of that is that you can get friends in other states to come and, and, and celebrate with you. So that was great. I mean, I had 200 people at my book launch, but then it kind of gets quiet after that. You do, you do a few more events with independent bookstores and then you don't have the benefit of just walking into a store and saying, hey, I'm an author, can I sign the books? And you know, can, can I tell you about my book so that you can hand sell it? So that is a loss for sure. Um, the other bummer is that, you know, my book is from Scholastic, which is known for book fairs and library penetration in education. Um, and because all the schools are virtual and most librarians are not even answering emails, it's really hard to, to know who even knows about it. So I'm hoping that in the fall when kids are going back to in-person, I have a 16 year old and he's now going back with a mask twice a week. Um, but I'm hoping that things will open up and I can start really making appearances more with teens. Um, the adult book club world has been very responsive because I think during COVID those readers have really expanded and um, that's been wonderful because I think the book has been a crossover appealing to, to adults as well. Well, I would say that's certainly the case. And I think you're absolutely right. I think by the fall, I know that we're planning to get back to where we used to, we would actually have authors come to Miami and we would actually bring them into the schools. And those events were sometimes the most successful events that we had. And we'd love to see you down here in Miami in the fall. And I'm hoping that we can work something out to have you come. I would love that. Which which is kind of, uh, which brings me to you and your writing career. I mean, that was so charming. I think it was on your website where you have, you have the story that you wrote when you were a young girl in 1974 or something like that. And it just so happens that the other day I was cleaning out my attic and I was going through all these old boxes uh, of papers that I had kept from a long time ago. And boy, you could write. I was embarrassed by everything I wrote, but when I looked at what you wrote, so you've been a writer your whole life, more or less, right? Uh, well, I have to say that I think my penmanship is my favorite thing about that, <laughs> that piece of writing because my handwriting was so good. And of course they don't really teach that anymore. It's, it's a lost art. 
Um, but I think I was a writer my whole life and, and I didn't know it. I was always making up stories. I was a huge reader and I always had a book with me. I read every single Nancy Drew and I loved when I traveled with my parents, um, I was lucky enough to go to Europe and I would finish a book and we'd have to find an English bookstore or book, you know, a bookstore in a foreign country that had English translation books. Cause I just always needed something. And I always liked stories where kids were trapped in a, or orphans or they were, they were trapped in a factory and they had to work and they, they needed to escape from something and life was so hard. Yeah. I always, I always responded to those kind of stories, um, but I didn't, you know, my earlier career was in advertising, so that I was a copywriter and that format is very quippy, very short sentences, um, clever, um, clever opening, clever conclusion, great headline, and that was my training. Uh, and then when I moved on into prose, a lot of my earlier work had that kind of vibe. Certainly my global warming book for kids was almost a transition book between the copywriting feeling and, and prose. It, was, it wasn't just a book. It was a very, it was very, it was relatively early. It was the down to earth guide to global warming, right? Published by Scholastic and you did it with Laurie David, right? I believe. Okay. And it won, I think it won the Green Earth Book Award. It was, I remember selling it very, very, um, uh, very well in the stores. So, it, and, you know, back in the early 2000s when you wrote it, you know, it really made a difference for young kids to be able to really see what some of the issues facing us were then. Unfortunately, they're still facing us, but, um, so you, you did morph into doing that, but then you have a really, tell us what you got tired of to start moving into where you are now. Well, so what I got tired of meaning from advertising or what I got tired of- Yeah, you have that very, you have that wonderful statement where you oh, say- Oh, right, on my website. Yeah. yeah, no, I was writing about cars and trucks right. and, and zero overhead camshafts and <laughs> engine, engine capacities. And I, I really felt like the, the stuff that I wanted to, to work on, the commercials and the print ads, were, were the NGOs, the charities, the issues. And so I started doing stuff for Pediatric AIDS Foundation and the California Lung Association. And my heart really wanted to be in those areas to try to do good with that, with my, um, my writing skills. So that's, that led me to my environmental activism, which was a great way to combine, to combine my love of writing with, with helping, helping the world and the planet. Um, and so, but I, but I also in my deep, deepest wishes wanted to be a fiction writer. And um, the nonfiction came really easily to me, um, but the fiction was harder. And I, I always had a fiction project in my drawer, but obviously in my computer um, and had, had limited success. I, I did sell one chapter book called Reggie the Veggie <laughs> to um, Random House, but they were bought by Bertelsmann and my contract was 
terminated after they had already done the cover and they had already edited it and they had a, um, a library of Congress number for it and everything. So, and I wasn't able to sell it again. And anyway, that's why this, this novel now is just so sweet. Well, and, and the novel uh, Poetry of Secrets is your first, your first major novel. And it, I think, you know, I'd love to hear you talk about what spurred you to write it, because it's a very interesting story. I mean, and it goes back to a love that you've had of things Spanish for a long, long time, going back to when you were a little girl, wasn't it? Yes. So um, I have a cousin who, is a, who has passed away, but he was a bullfighter. And he was Cousin Tony. So we always had this amazing lore and photos and stories of Cousin Tony. He's, he's on my, um, my mother's side, which is the Ashkenazi Jewish side from, from Eastern Europe. And then my father's side, he, my, my biological father died and my mom remarried a man who is Sephardic from the Iberian Peninsula originally, but his family uh, migrated to Turkey. So, um, I had this, um, oh, and I should also say that my, my mother's father, my grandfather was a film producer and this was on the cousin Tony side and um, his name was Sam White and he produced paella westerns, which um, are like spaghetti westerns in Italy, but paella westerns shot in Spain. And his movie, White Comanche, starred William Shatner Playing we, both two roles, right? I mean, that William Shatner played twin brothers, played his same character, but one was a peyote addicted crazy person, <laughs> and one, one was this heroic Comanche. And um, it was a, a bad, it was one of those movies that was voted in the Razzies or the Razzles. I think it's so, the bad, that it, so bad that it's good. So bad that it's good, like one of those B paella movies and um, is a little bit of a cult favorite, I suppose now. But at the time when my grandfather left for nine months, he, we never saw him and it was really kind of strange to not see your grandfather for that long. And then when he came home, he, was, he looked differently. He had grown a mustache, he had a fedora, he was super dashing. And I was really enchanted. I was only five and he had brought my sister and I these, well, my, my Nana had chosen them, these flamenco dresses with the castanets and the right. matching leather shoes and the pianetta, which is a hair comb. And I was just, I just fell madly in love. That began my romance with Spain, but I had never been. And cut to, I'm in my fifties and I've got a marriage and I've got adult children and I have a teen at home and we say, my husband and I discuss this and we say, let's have an adventure. Let's, let's teach our youngest child a foreign language. Um, and we talked about many languages, um, Hebrew and, and French and Italian. And, and it came down to Spanish. LA has such a huge Spanish population and it, it really is remarkable how, how much, how rich it can be in LA if you're a Spanish speaker. So it became a choice between South America or, or, or Mexico or Spain. And then it was like a light bulb went off. Madrid, we, Madrid is the city I wanna go to. My grandpa was there. My uncle was the bullfighter there. So sight unseen, I, I flew there for three days, found an apartment, found a school and we did it. Well, 
you went to Madrid. And what I love about this book is that it's so well-researched and it has a whole bunch of notes in the back, but you also include personal notes in the back. So we see the polka dot dress, right? You and your polka dot dress. We see your uh, uncle, the bullfighter, and it really draws us into your world as well, which, which I appreciated a lot when I read this. Because what you do is you tell the story of a young girl who is a converso, but then you bring it up to date. You have the epilogues that, mm-hmm. is, that I thought were really, really a smart vehicle for having us not leave the story so quickly. So while you were in Spain, you were then introduced to the whole world of conversos, right? And talk a little bit about that if you would. I knew the Ladino language a little bit from my grandmother. Ladino is a mixture of Hebrew and whatever the local language is. So there could be, Ladino could be Greek and Hebrew, Turkish and Hebrew, um, Spanish and Hebrew, wherever the diaspora of the Jews migrated to, they would speak Ladino after the um, expulsion from Spain. So I knew a little bit about Ladino, I knew a little bit about food, but when we moved to Spain, I, I, I was looking for Jewish remnants, Jewish presence, and I didn't, I couldn't find a lot. Um, our friends in Madrid were, were who were Jewish, very, very few of them had been Ashkenazi and had not been originally from the region. So I had, our first weekend excursion was to Segovia and it was a drive from Madrid, a two hour drive. And I noticed these plaques on the ground that were shaped um, in the shape of the Iberian Peninsula, which is Spain and Portugal together. And they had three Hebrew letters inside the shape, which spelled out Sephirod. And they were placed on various streets. And I found out this was the marking of the Jewish quarter, but there, that was it. It was, it was like a signal to Jewish tourists. Hey, Jewish tourists, this is where your people used to live. But there was, that was it. I mean, I, I wanted much more. And I was, it was not satisfying. I wanted to see a building. I wanted to see a archeological remnant. I wanted to see a museum. I wanted to hear, hear more and learn more. So I started reading all I could, nonfiction, fiction. And as we were talking about Mitch, I had not learned about the inquisition in school. For some reason, um, growing up in LA, it was not in our curriculum. So it was this just treasure for me of information. And only when we were taken to this area called Extremadura, which is halfway between um, Madrid and Portugal, and it's a region where there happened to be many towns that had had Jewish populations in the Middle Ages. So um, a friend of ours, um, a Jewish man whose father started the Orthodox synagogue in Madrid, who is um, Ashkenazi descent, and chose to settle in Madrid because that was, after losing his family in the Holocaust, that was the country that did not kick the Jews out. So my friend Daniel Mazin's father started the synagogue and Daniel said, you're so interested in this, I wanna take you to Extremadura. And there I was, I found towns, Ervas, Placencia, Trujillo, Trujillo is where the book takes place, that had actual remnants. I saw a doorpost with Hebrew letters that is now um, a pharmacy, but it had been an entrance to a synagogue. Um, Our tour guide who was a converso himself took us 
in a in an underground cellar. And I imagined, well, that was not my impetus to having the Perez family be in the wine business. Um, and I could picture what that could look like where a family could could be secretive about their Judaism. When I was touring Extremadura, I didn't know I was gonna write a book about it. I was just taking it all in and, and taking notes. It was only when I came home to LA that I realized maybe there's a story here. Tell us a little bit about the story and sure. tell us how you, how you um, settled on Isabel as the main character. So when I was walking these tiny alleyways in Trujillo and Ervas and Placencia, and I saw the actual streets and the narrowness, and I just had this vision of a young girl walking through the alley. Um, I should say a young woman, because Isabel is, is on the brink of womanhood. She's almost 17. Um, and so when I came home, I, I asked myself, all books start with a question, all writers start with a question. So you could say my first question was what happened to the Jews of Spain? Because that was what I asked myself when I first arrived. But then when I returned home to LA, I asked myself, what if I was a young woman living in pre-Inquisition Spain who fell in love with the wrong man? And I, there's a lot of Isabel in me because I, I always think, you know, I think about myself during the Holocaust, if I were a young woman, would, would, well, if I were a mother, what would I do with my children? If I were a young woman, what would I do if I fell in love? Would I fight? Would I be a freedom fighter? Would I, would I go easily with the um, Gestapo? Would I try to get money and leave? I, I don't know. Would I say, oh, I'm a German and they, they'll never kick me out. How could they kick me out? So those were very similar ideas that Isabel faced. Um, I was able to draw lines between medieval Spain, 15th century Spain and the Holocaust. And um, I really just imagined myself as Isabel and I'm a romantic. So I always want to put a romance in my stories. And that's, as a reader, that's why I love turning the page. Um, but, you know, the, the, the history was so frightening. And I just thought with such high stakes, it would, mm. it would make a great story. And it really unfolded from, from Isabel and her seeing Diego, that very first chapter which I really feel came out of my time walking through those streets. Well, and what you also did is you layered in your own interest in writing and you made her a poet, which I thought was really a brilliant, a brilliant tack that you took. Um, what you. kind of research did you have to do in order to understand the writing of the time and, and what people might've been, um, what the literary community of, of that period might've been like? You know, I had never written historical fiction. It was when I first pitched the idea to my agent, she, and I pitched her three ideas, she chose this one. I thought, oh no, I now have to write historical fiction. And how am I gonna do this? And how will I sound authentic? So the research really came into play. There were, I was very blessed to have a lot of fiction that's out there, adult fiction, and, and some incredible nonfiction. Um, which helped me get into the slightly formal aspect of, of the language. Um, which were some of the books that you relied on, the nonfiction books? Um, there was, well, the nonfiction, um, well, there's a book um, called Trujillo 
mm-hmm. um, that was a research paper um, about and used a lot of the official records of the mm-hmm. time of the Jews, of the non-Jews, of the um, lawmakers, and they were they were they talked about petty court cases, but you got to hear what the transgressions were and what the, the negotiations were and what the names of the people were. And, and it was in Spanish and in English and it really helped me understand how they spoke. Um, I also, you know, I wanted to have Isabel curse and I didn't know how to do curse words from that time period. Luckily, there are a lot of curse word websites that are English old English. So I tried to adapt them as much as I could. So Isabel didn't sound like a British girl so that she would actually sound Spanish. Um, but there was, a, there was a lot of por Dios, madre mia, that's like, by God, oh my gosh, you know, that kind of thing in Spanish. So the fiction, um, The Map Maker's Daughter. Yeah. I'm just going to go and check I, so I can actually give the Yeah, you actually names. have a bibliography there. Yeah. Yeah, so The Map Maker's Daughter is by Laurel Corona. Um, that, that was very vivid for me. Um, the Ghost of Hannah Mendez by Naomi Rogan was a great source. Um, also, The Last Jew by Noah Gordon, yeah. The Last Kabbalist of Lisbon by Richard Zimler, and Day of Atonement by David Liss. Those also really helped. Um, and I, oh, I should also say one more, um, Geraldine Brooks, uh, People of the Book. Well, that's a phenomenal book. Phenomenal. So she has a whole, I mean, her hers is about a Haggadah that travels through history, but the time period during the Inquisition really helped me. Um, and then, you know, I just started to try to imagine how they would talk. So there is a formality to it. I, I really enjoyed using big vocab words. Um, which, which was fun. And I, I hope that, that readers uh, learn a little bit from that. Um, and, uh, and, and the narrator, you know, I, I chose to make it in third person, um, but Isabel's, in Isabel's point of view, as well as Diego's point of view, alternating chapters. And so it was fun. I think the narrator could be slightly above it all. Um, but but yet when we're in Isabel and Diego's head, you know they're obviously talking like like young people in love. Well, you set you set the bar pretty high by by uh, by on your website having a quote by Guy Vanderhage. History tells us what people do. Historical fiction tells us how they felt, and I think you succeeded. You really, I think you did it. I think you'd be very proud of that, and you uh-huh. should be as well. Tell me about the peacocks. You know, I don't know. I, I know that they're that they've been around, obviously, since the medieval times. Um, they were in the illuminated manuscripts that I talk about in the book. There are images of peacocks, and I found those in my research. Beautiful colors, and because um, Diego is a painter, I just thought that was a wonderful way to um, elucidate his his vision, his love of color, his talent with painting. Um, and then the um, Scholastic, the, the book designer, the cover designer picked up on that motif, mm-hmm. honestly, which I had only mentioned once in the book. And um, that was all her super, super talented designer. And um, I was I was delighted to see that she used that throughout um, 
the tale coming through each chapter as just an illustration. Oh, it's beautiful. And I have to also say that it's haunting to see that the kind of painting of, of, of her on the cover as well. And, and she does look very much like you in the early, you have a photograph of yourself at the same age and the resemblance is uncanny actually. When I when when my editor sent me this cover design, I burst into tears. And yes, it was because it's my debut novel, and to see that cover is the most amazing feeling for, for an author. But also because I felt like I knew her. I felt like I knew this this image of this young woman, and she looks like my sister actually, and me when I was young. And I mean, a much prettier version of me. But I really relate to her and. It was, it, it really felt meant to be, um, you know, I remember with the Down to Earth Guide to Global Warming, we went through multiple cover designs. So it doesn't always happen where you fall in love immediately. And, and I was, I was. And I think, I think that the nature of this book, you hit it on the nose when you said that it's a crossover book. I think it's a book that adults will enjoy as much as young adults. And I, you know, as a bookseller, it's something that I would feel very comfortable recommending to the readers of Naomi Reagan or, or um, uh, any of the authors that you met, you mentioned as well. You know, um, thank you. I, I, I do feel that, and I didn't, I didn't set out to do that, but um, I wanted to mention the Book of Longings by Sue Monk Kidd, yeah, because um, I really, um, some, I, I sometimes dare I say compare my book as a YA crossover to hers. Hers is an adult novel, but it's, it's highly researched um, and a, an imagined love story with Jesus of Nazareth and his Jewish wife. Um, and, and it's at the heart of it is a love story, but she's also about, she's a woman who wants to find her own voice. And I really feel that Isabel is that, is that same kind of person who, doesn't have an avenue in the beginning to express herself, wants to be a poet, but doesn't really know how to go about that and, um, and ultimately does find her voice. You know, you, you focus on her as a young woman in a way that might've been kind of out of time even, but do you feel like you're making any kind of feminist statements at all for readers today about about you know when you when you talk about Isabel even back then, I do. I feel I feel feminism is certainly a theme, um, and but it goes along with identity. And so um, because Isabel is, she's got this intersectionality that we we've, we're now using that word a lot um, between being a Jewish, a, a, a female, a Jew, and um, a converso. So she is the other in so many ways, it's a patriarchal society and it's a Christian society. So um, in the beginning of the book, she's fighting not against her, her Judaism, but strictly against her, her femininity and, and the, the lack of, of opportunities that are given to her. And she is butting up against that. Um, and I think women today, you know, the Equal Rights Amendment still hasn't passed. You know, I mean, it's sort of shocking. Yeah. that that we still don't have that in in on the books and and the and the pay scale is still not commensurate with men um 
so society back then was in an extreme. I mean, you know, women were betrothed. Women really didn't have a, a love marriage. They did not have a choice. Um, women were lettered. Mostly Jewish women were lettered, but that was still not very common. Um, so I really did try to point that out. And, and if, if, if a female reader today can say, hey, I have many more opportunities, but I'm still not completely right. at parity, then, then yes, I've done my job. I wish you the best of luck with the Poetry of Secrets. But, you know, as we often do here, what I would love it is if you could read a little portion of it for us, that would be really excellent. So this is a scene where Isabel is in church. It's in towards the beginning of the book. She's with her family and she has already seen Diego on the street, but she doesn't really know a lot about him. And there is also some tension because of the Inquisition that's going to be discussed in church. And you'll also hear a conversation between her and her sister Beatrice, who is um, much more of um, a, a, an acceptor and an and a embracer of the Catholicism and of the teachings and does not enjoy that her family practices their Judaism in secret. Isabel took one last look at the back of Diego's head Diego, what a fine, strong name. She then slid to the right where a tall man promptly blocked her view. Fry Francisco de San Martin approached the pulpit in his rich vestments, a long sleeved white gown with a black velvet cape around the shoulders, cowled at the neck. His head was styled in a tonsure, shaved in a circle, leaving his hair in a ring from ear to ear and his pate bald. Four altar boys in white gowns and red sashes helped prepare the candles and the incense. Before we begin, said Fry Francisco, I have an announcement. Next Sunday, a special guest will be delivering the sermon, someone of high authority in the church. I trust you to make every effort to arrive early. Carry your infirm neighbors if you have to, and those too old to come, to, to come each week. He paused, his eyes sweeping the entire room. Do not miss this, or you may live to regret it. Murmurs went through the crowd. Isabel heard the name Torquemada spoken by the ladies in the pew behind. A shiver went through her. Would the private confessor to Queen Isabella truly visit their small village? Buenas noticias, said Beatrice. On the contrary, whispered Isabel. That does not sound like good news. If it were indeed to be Torquemada, that could only mean bad omens for conversos. The Dominican monk had been with the queen since she was a young princess and was rumored to be of converso origin himself. It was, it was also common knowledge that he made no secret of his hatred for anyone, Jew or more who did not accept the Lord Jesus as their savior. Nonsense, argued Beatrice. We need inspiration from someone closer to El Dios. Scripture can be limited with those small town friars. She clasped her hands together in supplication. There's no need to pray for a new sermon. It's going to happen, said Isabel. I'm just grateful that my wishes were heard. Be careful what you wish for. Don't be so narrow-minded that you close yourself off to new ideas, said Beatrice. Trying to reason with Beatrice was a losing proposition. Isabel directed her attention to the front. The service was beginning. After mass, it was time to approach the altar to take the host. Maybe she would have a chance to see Diego again, but it was not to be. Because of his advantageous position in the front pew, he was one of the first to receive communion. As he left through a front exit, she was able to catch only a quick glimpse of his shoulders before he disappeared. Since her family was seated so far back, it took nearly 15 minutes before they reached the front. 
Isabel smelled the soapy scent of the friar's hand, unsuccessfully masking the odor of onions. He inserted the wafer and she distractedly let it dissolve in her mouth. Her sister, however, looked positively beatific, tipping her head back in pleasure like a kitten being petted behind the ears. Oh, that's beautiful. Uh, Cambria Gordon, the author of The Poetry of Secrets. Thanks for being on The Literary Life this afternoon. Thank you, everybody. I'm honored. It was really, really fun. <laughs>